Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here, and I'm delighted to open our conference on Magna Carta and the rule of law around the world. Uh, we here at Cato, of course, care a whole lot about liberty, and I may be revealing my bias as a, uh, well, recovering lawyer, uh, but I think there can be no liberty without law. And the foundational law securing and protecting liberty in the Western tradition is Magna Carta. June 15th marks the, to be exact, marks the 800th anniversary of the Great Charter of Liberties. King John of England agreed to, and, and that aimed to limit the crown's power. Uh, Magna Carta exerted a significant influence on the development of the common law in England, then in the United States, and in turn around the world as nations threw off their authoritarian rulers and tried to, at least on paper, live under the rule of law. Now, what is this rule of law? It gets bandied about a lot. I'm sure we'll mention it both at this panel and the next one. Well, it's the principle of governance whereby all persons, institutions, and entities, including the state itself, are accountable to laws, not personal authority. Laws that have been publicly passed by a representative body. Laws enforced equally by enforcement organs who themselves follow them. <coughs> laws reviewed, interpreted, and applied by an independent judiciary. Uh, the rule of law is important because people must be able to live without fear and feel secure that the rules under which they conduct their lives won't change day to day at the whim of uh, one ruler or another. But don't take this from me. I'm a simple constitutional lawyer, uh, although you'd be surprised how much these simple facts and concepts still make waves to this day. I was speaking at a conference on the rule of law in Guyana, of all places, about uh, seven years ago. Uh, and the next day, front page news in their daily paper, my picture above the fold with a glaring headline, judiciary should be independent, says US expert. So uh, that's the kind of uh, path-breaking uh, policy theory that we engage in uh, here at Cato. In any event, we have for you today two panels of experts to mark this anniversary. Uh, in the first panel, my former law professor, Richard Helmholtz, will explain the emergence of the Magna Carta and discuss its impact on rule of law in England. Uh, then, Tom Palmer will discuss similar charters in other parts of medieval Europe uh, and other parts of the world a, a little bit. You've got to tease into the, the second panel. Uh, and then my boss, Roger Pallon, uh, will speak about the charter's importance to the United States. And in the second panel, we hope you'll stick around, speakers will address the unsteady spread of the rule of law around the world. Richard Pipes on Russia, Swami Ayar on India, and Juan Carlos Botero will give a global overview of progress and challenges based on the rule of law index. It's my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce this distinguished panel. For reasons you'll shortly see, uh, I'll introduce each speaker right before he speaks. Richard Helmholtz is the Ruth Wyatt Rosenson Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago where he taught me in a fascinating seminar on sovereignty and the origins of the nation state. He's been awarded a Fulbright Scholarship, a, Guggen a Guggenheim Fellowship, and an Alexander von Humboldt Research Prize. In 2000-2001, he served as the Arthur Goodhart Professor of Law at Cambridge University. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and of the Medieval Academy of America, a member of the American Law Institute, and a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, received an AB in French Literature from Princeton, Go Tigers. I think you must have graduated the year before I started, so we didn't overlap. 
um, and a PhD in medieval history from uh, the University of California at Berkeley. His teaching centers on property law and natural resources law, and his research interests concentrate in legal history, where his principal contribution has been to show the relevance of the Roman and canon laws to the development of common law. And I commend to all of you uh, his article from 1999, Magna Carta and the Use Commune. Very interesting. Uh, in other words, Professor Helmholtz is the perfect man to kick off the conference. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, it's real. I've never, never been here before, and it's a real pleasure and an honor to, uh, to be here. I hope you all have a, the copy of the handout I gave, because I'm going to make reference to it. Uh, if you don't, maybe somebody will bring one in and, uh, and, and let you have a copy. Um, I'm going to talk about the Magna Carta itself, what it meant in, uh, in 1215, and, and why it's important, or why it was important then, and continue to resonate uh, through the centuries. Uh, but I uh, do so really taking notice of the extraordinary attention that's being paid to Magna Carta this year. It was not true in uh, earlier centuries. Uh, the London Review of Books had a, a long article on the various five books that had just appeared on the subject. It appeared in the New Yorker, and as those of you who uh, looked at the, look at the Wall Street Journal noticed, last Saturday it had a long uh, article on the subject. All of it quite uh, laudatory, I think. And uh, it uh, fits a pattern of the extolling of Magna Carta that we've seen um, this year, and uh, it's not entirely uh, new. In 2007, UNESCO admitted Magna Carta to the collection of items identified as, quote, uh, the memory of the world in recognition of the outstanding value it was, UNESCO proclaimed, not simply a local British circumstantial moment. It had a universal human purchase. And as the citation from UNESCO continued, uh, Magna Carta is a charter which for the first time detailed written constraints on royal authority in the field of church rights, taxation, feudal rights, and justice. It has become an icon for freedom and democracy throughout the world. Uh, so that's, view, that's one view of the subject, and we hear it quite a bit um, today. Uh, maybe many of you are not familiar with the scholarly criticism of, of that view of Magna Carta. But if you look into the literature, you'll see that there's been a, uh, a quite considerable list of academic historians who have taken rather the opposite view of the importance of Magna Carta. Uh, they've said that the Magna Carta enshrines baronial self-interest only, that is, the interest of uh, rich uh, barons, did nothing for the uh, common people. They've said that Magna Carta was backward-looking. Uh, it exalted the customs, uh, the traditional customs of the realm. Didn't, it wasn't truly reforming anything. It was just looking backwards. Uh, they've said it was a miscellaneous collection, kind of a ragbag uh, of grievances by the uh, barons. Uh, there was no system to it, uh, not, nothing but uh, complaints of the moment. And they've said that it was local, uh, that is, it, it was uh, dealing with local problems, uh, nothing systematic about it. And of course, it was an immediate failure. It was annulled by the, uh, by the Pope. 
It was disregarded by the king and by the barons both, uh, and the war between them uh, continued, settled only by the death of King John the year afterwards. Moreover, they said it wasn't too important in the time. For example, Sir John Fortescue, who wrote uh, De Laudibus Lego Mangliae, the praise of English law in the 15th century, didn't say a word about Magna Carta. It, it couldn't have meant very much, they say. And therefore, the, there's been created a kind of a myth of uh, Magna Carta. Uh, and, and it was what was made of Magna Carta later on only that, uh, that counted. Well, I don't think that view is correct. And I'm going to try to uh, talk about, or at least to harmonize in a measure, the two views that, that uh, I've just outlined about Magna Carta. I guess it's kind of seeking a middle ground between the two approaches. There's a good deal of truth in what the uh, critics have said of Magna Carta, but I think there's some truth in the uh, the opposite view today, which praises Magna Carta as a really an important document. And I want to try to sketch out uh, my view of the subject. I suggest that we don't need to make a choice between the two views as, uh, as I've just outlined them, at least in the strong form that uh, you see it. And uh, I think in, in making that argument, I think it's important to, to consider the jurisprudential assumptions that were accepted in 12,015, not the jurisprudential assumptions that are prevalent today. That's what I'm going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. Uh, this, in a few minutes this morning, according to then contemporary jurisprudential theory, all law could be divided into four basic categories. First, the law of nature. Second, the jus gentium, or the law of nations. Third, the jus civile, that is the municipal law or the positive law uh, of individual kingdoms and territories. And fourth, the jus divinum, the law of God that had been given to, uh, to Christians. Subdivisions had to be hived off within each of these categories to do justice to the complexity of human life. But these four things were the basic divisions of law. They were different. But they were not independent, and I think that's uh, important. That's the relevant point for understanding what Magna Carta was in its own time. The law of nations and the municipal law were understood as putting into more detailed form the general prescriptions that were found within the law of nature and uh, within divine law, too. But these two, the law of nations and the municipal law, were not identical. The jus gentium, the law of nations, was shared by all civilized peoples, whereas each individual land was free to adopt an individual rule or statutes suitable for its own situation. And everywhere this had happened, in fact. Italian law was different from Spanish law, but both of them depended upon the law of nature, and both of them were consistent with the law of civilized nations. So, for example, the law of nature uh, provided that parents had an obligation to provide for the, their young. Even animals uh, obeyed that law, or at least most of them. The jus gentium put that principle into the form of an obligation, enforceable in law, one that had to be respected and was respected by all nations. 
And the Jus Civile, that is a municipal law, its function was to provide statutory remedies and specific penalties to be imposed upon neglectful parents so that the obligation could be understood and enforced in local practice. In other words, in the contemporary understanding, one moved from the general to the specific. It was something like the difference between the US Constitution and current statute law. The Constitution states principles of law in general terms, and statute law is supposed to be congruent with them. The Constitution says we're entitled to due process of law before our property is taken by the government. Statute law says that we also have a right to fair compensation if our property is taken, and that this assessment of its value is to be made by an impartial tribunal. Of course, the, the parallel is not exact. Natural law is more general, and many provisions of the US Constitution are parts of the municipal, the positive law. However, I, I do hope you see the parallel. The two sources of law were supposed to be in harmony, and if they weren't, something had gone wrong. Judicial review of legislation is one way of securing that harmony, but it's not the only way, and of course our courts, our courts have gone far beyond what any jurist living in 1215 could have imagined. Real differences between these sources of law existed. The natural law could not be changed, for example, whereas the law of nations and municipal law could. This isn't the time to go through the distinctions and qualifications that were necessary to make this scheme work, though they do interest some lawyers. The essential thing is that all four sources of law were necessary, and they were all supposed to work in harmony to achieve law's main goal, the goal of rendering due justice to all people. I wonder if you can see uh, how this scheme matters for the meaning of Magna Carta in 1215. I don't think it's particularly complicated, but it's a little bit hard to see. Most of Magna Carta, as in other statements of law adopted in other European nations around the same time, Magna Carta was a statement of municipal law, positive law, that grew out of both the law of nature and the law of nations. It also incorporated divine law for the liberty of the church found in the chapters, in the charter's first chapter was no part of natural law. The English church did not exist in the Garden of Eden. But God had spoken to the point. I know that some of you are familiar with the abundant controversial literature that emerged during the investiture controversy and that continued long afterwards. And I need not remind you that Pope Innocent III found in the Bible evidence to prove that he and other popes had been granted plenitude of power on earth. Freedom of exercising that power, particularly freedom from secular control, was regarded as a necessary component of that power. And chapter one of Magna Carta, which you have on your handout, put that principle into a more definite form. It would not, therefore, have been regarded simply as a reiteration of one clause in King Henry I's coronation charter, but as a recognition within the municipal law of England of a fundamental principle of the law that God himself had made known to all Christians. In other words, under the prevailing assumption of the time, Magna Carta's first chapter 
provided an example of how legal principle became enforceable law, jus cogens, if you like. It wasn't a perfect statement, for it left open exactly what the English church's freedom meant in particular circumstances, but it surely applied to Episcopal elections. And as Sir James Holt, the main stu student in modern times of Magna Carta, concluded, its imprint, that is the imprint of the chapter one, came to, he said, quote, infect the whole of the charter. And that's exactly the function the classical jurisprudential system I've been describing was thought to serve. Contemporaries would not have used, would have used a different word than infect. They didn't consider the natural law to be a virus. But they did assume that it should stand behind and influence the content of the positive law. And that's exactly what happened in the formulation of Magna Carta. I'll ask you now to look at, have a look at some of the provisions on the handout. And I'll use them to try to explain how the great principles from, drawn from the law of nature and from divine law were worked out in detail in the charter. An unlikely but not unusual at all example is provided by uh, chapter 33. Chapter 33 read, henceforth all kaidels shall com be completely removed from the Thames and the Medway and throughout all England. A very strange chapter it seems and quite anomalous, quite out of place in a charter of English liberties. A kaidel is a fish weir which is a fence of snakes placed in a river and used in order to catch and preserve, uh, to catch fish swimming in the river. What does that have to do with liberty? For that matter, what does it have to do with baronial self-interest? It looks a good deal more comprehensible, however, if we consider it in relation to the law of nature. Under natural law principles, the seas and other navigable waters were res nullius, that is, no one owned them. In the absence of special circumstances, their use was open to all. To erect a fish weir, an obstruction placed in a river, was thus to interfere with a natural right held by all men, the right to free passage over navigable waters. You may remember that the freedom of the seas would become the great theme of Mare Liberum by Hugo Grotius in the 17th century. Here it is in the 13th century in an only slightly different context. Placing an obstacle like a fish weir in a navigable river abridged a natural right. It was a local grievance, but within it lay a large principle. Much the same can be said of the second two chapters on your handout. The first, in the, chapter eight, based on the free choice in marriage, in this case, in the specific case, the free marriage of widows, is one of those examples of freedom in what we call a basic life choice that was established as part of the law of the medieval church. The second gave details about how immersements, that is the equivalent of modern fines, would be set. It protected merchants and even serfs from arbitrary fines. Here the underlying natural principle was that of proportionality in punishment. It's an important matter. Three strikes and you're out is a model, mo modern example of a law that skates very close to the edge of the principle's violation. Some say it violates it. Analysis of chapter 39, perhaps the most famous among the charter's contents, is not vastly different. 
Just to remind you, it's been claimed that the chapter guaranteed the right to a trial to jury in criminal cases. It does say something like that in stressing the necessity for the lawful judgment of the peers before you could be imprisoned or destroyed. Now, it's true that Chapter 39 could not have meant to guarantee the right to jury trial in 1215. No such thing existed. However, the chapter did state clearly that the king would not take punitive action against any free man unless he did so by lawful means. And it turned out that the English law came to adopt jury trial as the ordinary way of trying people who were accused of a crime. Of course, this was a product of choice. The governments of most European lands chose a different path. However, the right to a fair trial was what mattered under the law of nature. And in the municipal law of England, that right soon came to be understood as including the right to be tried by an impartial jury. Having chosen jury trial as a part of the municipal law, English jurists and even kings were then bound to respect it as one part of the law of the municipal law. And it was a right anchored in a larger right of the law of nature. Well, so what? I think, assuming what I've said is true, as I believe it is, it matters. I think it has a collateral benefit. Besides helping us to better understand what Magna Carta meant in its own time, it helps to explain some of the later uses of Magna Carta, and even perhaps some of, uh, we hear some echoes of it today. That's been the primary subject uh, of interest to historians. And if they, of course, they've noticed how frequently the charter was used as a source of rights. Historians have sometimes treated these uses as pure invention. But in fact, many of them followed from an accepted way of interpreting legal text in 1215 and throughout the later Middle Ages. Lawyers saw within these texts a mind containing basic principles, one not confined necessarily to their specific terms. And that mind became a legitimate means of expanding the reach of specific provisions. And some of the uses to which the Great Charter was later put become less surprising and I think more interesting as examples of this method of statutory interpretation. That is the text in a specific context stated a basic underlying principle which could be applied and was naturally applied to different circumstances. It's not wholly unlike the way the text of the Bible itself was then read. And I think we need to recover that assumption of jurisprudence if we are more fully to understand the later uses made of the Charter's provision. Words in a statute might be understood as containing magnum in parvo. They might contain a meaning that extended beyond the specific instance in which they were invoked. What lawyers did with the text of Magna Carta in later century was to apply this method to the terms of Magna Carta. It may sometimes look like invention or naivete or even worse, to us, but it did not to them. Thank you. Thank you for that, Professor Helmholtz. Tom Palmer 
is the Executive Vice President for International Programs at the Atlas Network and is responsible for managing programs for a worldwide network of think tanks. He's also a senior fellow at Cato and director of Cato in, uh, University, our summer program, of which I'm also a, a graduate. Before joining Cato, he was an H.B. Earhart Fellow at Hertford College, Hartford College, I guess, at Oxford. Maybe we'll see some fireworks between the, the Oxbridge Dons here. Uh, and a Vice President of the Institute for Humane Studies. He frequently lectures around the globe. If you need advice on how to travel from Kuala Lumpur to Tegucigalpa, he's your man. Uh, and has written for various scholarly and popular journals. He's the author of four books and the editor of the widely acclaimed The Morality of Capitalism. Palmer received his BA from St. John's College, his MA in philosophy from Catholic University, and his doctorate in politics from Oxford. I first met Tom when he lectured to my internship program nearly 20 years ago. Uh, ever since, I've considered him to be the bo both the best-read and best-dressed scholar of political theory and morality, Roger excluded, of course. Thank you, Ilya. As usual, you've confused me with my dad, who gave that lecture 20 years ago. <laughs> well, it's glad, I'm so glad to see Cato sponsoring the celebration and also meditation about Magna Carta on this important occasion. There's been so much written, and I'm just going to add a couple of thoughts to a great tradition. The first is that much is made by English and Anglophile writers about the uniqueness of the Anglo-Saxons, or perhaps we should say the Anglo-Normans, but we should take that with a few grains of salt. The British member of the European Parliament and author Daniel Hannan argues in his most interesting and lively book, Inventing Freedom, how the English-speaking peoples made the modern world, that the principles of limited government and respect for law are uniquely expressed in English. I've heard even bolder versions in England. On one occasion, I sat through a lecture surrounded by Belgians and Germans and Italians and Moroccans by an English professor who insisted that other languages could not even express the idea of liberty. That is rubbish. On Saturday, Dan Hannon wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, it was at Runnymede on June 15, 1215, that the idea of the law standing above the government first took contractual form. In his book, he wrote, for the first time, the idea that governments were subject to the law took written contractual form. He said, rather interestingly, of the American Revolution, following a quotation from 1774, quote, nowhere at this stage do we find the slightest hint that the patriots were fighting for universal rights. He continued, I recount these facts to make an important, if unfashionable, point. The rights we now take for granted, freedom of speech, religion, assembly, and so on, are not the natural condition of an advanced society, which I think is certainly true. They were developed overwhelmingly in the language in which you are reading these words. When we call them universal rights, we are being polite, he added. Now, I learned a long time ago to be very careful with terms such as first, last, never, always, and only. And I encourage Dan to be careful as well. In fact, Magna Carta was an important moment in the development of a much wider European movement of charters, communes, consent-based, oath fellowships, and much more, which carved out spheres of freedom and provided instruments to contain power. Guilds and communes were being organized all over Europe, including, but by no means only, in England, and they secured peace and liberty for greater and greater numbers of people. 
The great historian Henri Piran noted that the increase of trade led to greater demands for liberty. For, as he said, trade made of the merchant a man whose normal condition was liberty. Of the needs of the new civil society that was emerging, he said, the most indispensable was personal liberty. Without liberty, that is to say, without the power to come and go, to do business, to sell goods, a power not enjoyed by serfdom, trade was impossible. City air makes free after the lapse of a year and a day. Stadtluft macht frei nach Ablauf von Jahr und Tag. Not only after Magna Carta, but for many, many years prior to it. Anthony Black, the historian, in his wonderful study of guilds and civil society, pointed out that the crucial point about both guilds and communes, communes does not mean hippies smoking pot, it referred to the urban associations, or we would call them today municipalities or cities. The crucial point about both guilds and communes was that here individuation and association went hand in hand. One achieved liberty by belonging to this kind of group. Citizens, merchants, and artisans pursued their own individual goals by banding together under oath. That movement was extremely important for the emergence of liberty under law. It involved both conspiracies or conjurations against the powers of the day and also royal charters, often at the expense of local feudal powers. King John himself had been involved in such acts. The Charter of Ipswich in the year 1200 it entailed both a charter from the king that granted exemption to the citizens from tolls and a variety of charges, exemption from the billeting of troops, we find this later in the American Constitution, protection of property and so on, and guaranteeing that, quote, justice shall be done them according to the ancient custom of the borough of Ipswich and of our free boroughs. And also an oath among the citizens who gathered together and held hands on Sunday, July 12th of 1200, July 2nd, pardon me. And they, with one voice, solemnly swore that they would obey and assist with their bodies and goods, the bailiffs, coroners, and every one of the capital portmen to safeguard the borough, its new charter, its liberties and customs, in all places against all persons, the royal power accepted, according to their ability as far as they ought justly and rationally to do. Now, interestingly enough, in chapter 61 of the Magna Carta, we see a reference to the communal movement. It refers to the power of the selected 25 barons for enforcement, something that never actually happened. That became a dead letter. It says these 25 barons with the commune of all the land. Very interesting reference to this wider communal movement. There was to be a commune of all the land and it entitled them, quote, to distrain and distress us, King John, in every way they can, seizing castles, lands, and possessions, and so on and so forth. So giving them a power of enforcement against the king. So Magna Carta, even in this regard, was not unique. One might mention the coronation oath of Henry I that was, uh, played some role. Uh, it made concessions to the barons and knights, but also the assizes of Ariano in the year 1140, promulgated by King Roger II of Sicily. Shortly after Magna Carta, the Golden Bull of Hungary, 1222, signed by King Andras, which put limits also on the power of the king. Even the phrase or the principle about the law of the land and trial by one's peers, as Harold Berman has observed, may be found in other documents of the period. The Constitution promulgated by the Emperor Conrad II in 1037 
declared no vassal should be deprived of an imperial or ecclesiastical fief, quote, except in accordance with the law of our predecessors and the judgment of his peers. So this Magna Carta is situated within a much wider European struggle over powers, immunities, rights, and liberties. It was by no means the first occasion, as Dan put it, uh, that the idea that governments were subject to the law took written or contractual form. The movement for liberties and immunities was sweeping the continent, England included. It was vitally important, not because it was unique, but mainly because it was remembered, a point to which I'll return later. It was also part of a wider European movement for the freedom of the church, not separation of church and state as we understand the phrase today, although it was certainly the source of that. It originated in the attempt of each church and the secular or uh, 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 powers to gain mastery over the others and their general failure to do so. In 1075, the Dictatus Pape of Pope Gregory VII laid down the gauntlet and concluded that the Pope may absolve subjects from their fealty to wicked men, so giving him a power above the highest secular powers. Now, King John was excommunicated from the church, and the kingdom was laid under an interdict by the church in 1208. This made things very hard for the Christian population. There could be no Christian burial and so on during this period. He returned to the church in 1213, evidently to shore up his powers against the emerging coalition of the barons. On May 15 of 2013 in Dover, he granted to, quote, God, the apostles Peter and Paul, the Holy Roman Church, our mother, and to our Lord Pope Innocent III and his Catholic successors, the kingdoms of England and Ireland with all our right and appurtenances for the mission of our sins and all our race, living and dead. He then received it back as a fief, a feudal uh, fief, in exchange for the Pledge of Loyalty and his homage, including substantial payments of cash. But, quote, saving to us and our heirs, our ordinances, our freedoms, and our royal status. So thus the kingdom would now be held of the church and secured, he evidently hoped, a status that was both feudal and sacred. The leaders of the church, as rivals to the secular powers, maneuvered constantly for the church's advantage, which helps to explain why Magna Carta begins and concludes with affirmations of the freedom of the church. The English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties impaired. And very importantly, that they would be responsible for the election of bishops. They would not be subject to royal appointment. That discussion of the church in the first chapter is followed by the vitally important promise, and here's where Professor Holt mentioned the infection uh, of Magna Carta. Quote, we have also granted to all the free men of our realm for ourselves and our heirs forever all the liberties written below to have and hold them and their heirs from us and our heirs. Extraordinarily important language. Now, had the conflict between the Roman church and the secular powers not been underway, Magna Carta would have been unthinkable, or at least would have taken a dramatically different form. It was part of a European movement, not a unique expression of Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Norman or Anglo-Andrevan character. The movement that led to Magna Carta, the document agreed to by kings and barons, and shortly thereafter annulled by the pope and torn up by the king, was not a part of a general movement to achieve individual liberty in the rule of law. As we are reminded, and Professor Humholtz brought this up, it was also a struggle over money, wealth, power. But in that struggle about justice, about law, that 
In that struggle, arguments about justice, about law, and about rights and liberty played key roles. And those arguments and points had a great influence on the subsequent emergence of the movement for constitutionally limited government with a mandate to protect liberty and restraints on those who exercised the mandate. In the struggle with the barons, the king deployed a huge array of stratagems to extract money, manpower, and other resources from them, and through them, from the people of England. Acts of extortion, maximal extraction of feudal dues, sale of privileges and immunities against powers that had been amassed by his father, Henry II, and deployment of the legal system, the sale of justice as a revenue device. In 1204, the loss of Normandy was a terrible blow to a ruler who claimed descent from uh, William the Conqueror. The taxes and military services he demanded as a means to recover his lost domain caused resentment, and civil war became the greater danger. The dice were rolled in 1214, and he and his allies suffered an epic defeat at the hands of the French monarch, Philip II Augustus. Now, the struggle at this time is not so easy to understand today. It's difficult to put ourselves into the shoes of the people then. It was not a constitutional struggle as we might understand it, with branches or levels of government uh, arguing about uh, their powers or citizens asserting their rights, because the state as such could barely be said to have existed at all. The very distinction between the state and the personal possessions of the king was quite blurry. Power was contested among King Henry II, his wife, and his sons, all of whom were at war with each other at various times, including John, the state was a family affair, and family arguments took place not over the kitchen table, but on the battlefield. In effect, there was no state as we understand it today, something that stands behind or under or is in some way independent of or prior to the personal prerogatives of those who hold power. The closest thing in modern times might be the patrimonial state of Muammar Gaddafi, who divided up each son, had his own militia, and he would hand out money in his tent beside, behind his palace. But at the same time, a complex set of power relationships was emerging into a system of law, rules that could be applied to both rulers and ruled, and that formed the foundation of what we call the rule of law. One of the important consequences of Magna Carta was it began the distinction of the administration of the king's interests, on the one hand, from the administration of the law. But it was not, in my opinion, a part of a grand libertarian strategy or movement to define and limit the powers of the state. As I said, the state barely could be said to have existed at all. It played a very important role in the centuries following the development of political theory of limited government, again, part of a general movement to subordinate power to law. The debates at the time involved a complex array of arguments for and against the rights and claims of kings, emperors, popes, urban communes, shires, guilds, citizens, and even mere individuals. On behalf of the power of the state, European kings would regularly cite uh, Paul's letter, Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Very strong argument marshaled on behalf of absolute power of the king. And 1 Corinthians 15, about status, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. The kings, it was argued, ruled by divine concession, and then any powers or rights of the others were concessions from the king's plenitude of power. 
the church, in contrast, stood on other biblical passages, notably Matthew 22, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And they very adroitly used the rediscovered digest of Justinian as a source of law. Some of the most important and powerful popes were lawyers. You could, something to look forward to, Ilya. <laughs> Feudal lawyers cited custom and oath as sources of and limits on authority. And I do highly recommend Professor Helmholtz's a University of Chicago Law Review study, and I think he shows clearly but judiciously and cautiously that the text was strongly influenced, both in substance and in choice of language, by the Roman and canonistic traditions. The outcome was a, of a, this complex mixture of Roman law, Christian theology, and Germanic oath-based fellowship was at the root of feudalism. When we run it through the blender of the contest for power was the emergence of the individual as a bearer of rights, and social relations as the product of the free exercise of those rights, or as Sir Henry Sumner Main called it, a movement from status to contract. Now, what about Magna Carta today? Only a few elements could still be found in written law, and notably chapter 39, that after paraphrase and reinterpretation, uh, found its way into the American Constitution, a due process of law and trial by jury in the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. But I think Magna Carta's greatest importance may be because it created for what Hannon calls the English-speaking peoples a narrative with exceptional power. It was cited in the petition of 1628 against Stuart tyranny. The British colonies in America declared Magna Carta to be part of the laws of the provinces. In 1638, the Colonial Assembly of Maryland declared the inhabitants shall have all their rights and liberties according to the Great Charter of England, which was quickly vetoed as against the royal prerogative. The American colonists cited Magna Carta quite forcefully. It figured prominently in their petitions uh, to the British Crown and Parliament. But they did more than that, and here I think Dan Hannon is just wrong. Because they did draw on a tradition of natural rights, and natural law, express, expressed quite brilliantly, especially in English, by the Levelers and by John Locke, who I think was also influenced by the Levelers, they did assert universal rights. And the power of the formulation of liberty was precisely in the merger of abstractly formulated and thus universal rights with concretely situated historical rights and claims. So we should certainly cite Magna Carta and the American Constitution as the bedrock of our liberties, but not thereby consign other people from other traditions to slavery and tyranny. The myth of an ancient constitution promulgated by Sir Edward Cook and others, when combined with the bold claim to universal rights, the truths held to be self-evident, allows Americans to draw on powerful sources of legitimacy for limits to power and the free exercise of rights. Americans can be both traditional and radically universalistic at the same time. They can draw on the common yearning for identity, this is who we are, and also on reason and universality of claims. And this, I think, Americans are heirs to the levelers. They also called on the ancient constitution. I think of John Lilburn in particular, his demand for the right to trial by jury and rejection of the jurisdiction of the Court of Star Chamber. And also William Walwyn, who dismissed Magna Carta as that mess of pottage. And Richard Overton. Overton argued, to every individual nature is given an individual property by nature, not to be invaded or usurped by any. For everyone, as he is himself, 
He has a self-propriety, else could he not be himself. By natural birth, all men are equally and alike born to like propriety, liberty, and freedom. These are robust universalistic claims, but by someone who also cited the ancient constitution. Now, the merger of these two appeals on the one hand to historically situated rights that provide a sense of identity and appeals to abstract and universal justice that appeal to reason and conscience provides a powerful formula for liberty. I believe that today's challenge worldwide for advocates of liberty and the rule of law is to identify in myriad cases the local roots in each culture of constitutional restraint on power and respect for the right to freedom of the individual. Those roots are there. You have to look for them, not only in the history of the English-speaking peoples, but everywhere. In Russia, libertarians remember the city of Novgorod, known for the freedom and the independence of its citizens. It enjoyed a charter and a legal code, the Ruskaya Pravda, under Yaroslav the Wise, and the boyars in 1136, 79 years before Magna Carta, dismissed or fired their prince, uh, Vesevolod Mstislavich, and instituted the principle of an elective executive with limited powers. In Islamic civilization, the prophet laid down standards of respect for the rights of individuals, respect for justice among those with power. And from that civilization emerged ideas that had a big influence on the pro-liberty ideas of Europe. One could go on with other examples. In China, great thinkers such as Lao Tzu, Confucius, Mencius, and Su Tongpo articulated philosophies enjoining restraint and modesty and justice among rulers. Liberty under the rule of law is not merely an English birthright. It is a human birthright. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tom. I don't know how you smoked out my secret ambition to become the first Jewish pope. <laughs> Roger Pallon is the founder and director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. He's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University through the Fund for American Studies. Before joining Cato, Pallon held five senior posts in the Reagan administration and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the Constitution. In 2001, Columbia University School of General Studies awarded him its Alumni Medal of Distinction. Pallon lectures and debates at universities across the country and often testifies before Congress. His writing has appeared in a multiplicity of publications, including, I believe, 23 times in the Wall Street Journal. Is that number right, Roger? Yes. Um, he has also provided commentary to a plethora of broadcast media. Uh, Roger holds a BA from Columbia, an MA and a PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from the George Washington University. Most importantly for our purposes, he was there at Runnymede. <laughs> And a good time we had there. Well, my subject uh, for today is uh, Magna Carta's importance for America. Tom has already anticipated some of the uh, points that I'm going to make. It hardly needs saying, of course, that uh, we Americans owe an immense debt to the uh, nobles and clergy who 800 years ago uh, at Runnymede wrested from King John several of the rights and liberties we enjoy today, to say nothing of the rule of law that followed over the centuries, albeit unevenly, as Professor Helmholtz uh, noted. And yet we're also fond of believing that in 1776 our nation sprang 
fully formed ex nihilo, uh, as if by immaculate conception. As I'll discuss in a few minutes, uh, there's more than an element of truth in that conception. Indeed, we'll be celebrating it across the nation exactly one month from today. But when the fireworks have ended, uh, we should also recognize that uh, for all their advances, and they were many and profound, our nation's founders and the Constitution's framers drew much from the nation from which we broke 239 years ago. As an institutional matter, that inheritance begins with the common law, made over the centuries by judges adjudicating controversies between private individuals, one case at a time, a law recognized expressly in the Constitution's Seventh Amendment. In his classic Harvard Law Review essays on the higher law background of American constitutional law, Edward Corwin tells us that the common law's true beginnings predate Magna Carta. They arose in the third quarter of the 12th century when Henry II established circuit courts with a central appeals court, which over time made the law common to the realm of England. A half century later uh, comes Magna Carta, reflecting much of that nascent private law, with Magna Carta, we get the rule of law in the form of a written document brought into being not by an enactment but by a compact, a political act that established positive law, binding the king by his own hand, albeit not without the pressures of the regnant feudal system of the day. Add to that the hint of a future parliament reflected in the idea of the king's ruling in consultation with the, quote, common council of the realm, as in chapter 12's taxation provisions, and we have at least an adumbration of separated powers. Today, however, we see Magna Carta less for those broad institutional developments than as a muniment of English liberties. Yet the story of their travel abroad, my subject here, begins not in the 13th, but early in the 17th century and in the mother country with Magna Carta's reemergence from its eclipse under the Tudors and the uses to which the great English jurist, Sir Edward Cook, uh, would put the chapter in his struggles against the Stuarts and to a lesser degree against Parliament itself. Those struggles would unfold just as English colonists began settling in America for fortunate accident of history. Thus the charter and the very first of those settlements in Virginia in 1606 declared that the colonists and their posterity uh, as English subjects were to enjoy, and I quote, all liberties, franchises, and immunities to the same extent as if they had been abiding and born in England, language that would be repeated in charters from Massachusetts Bay in 1629 and Georgia in 1732. Meanwhile, developments back in England over this period, the 1628 Petition of Right, the 1679 Habeas Corpus Act, the 1689 Bill of Rights in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, each of which drew upon the ancient rights set forth in Magna Carta, did not go unnoticed in the colonies. William Penn, for example, having survived uh, his 1670 trial in England for preaching his Quaker beliefs, drew heavily on Magna Carta in his 1682 blueprint for Pennsylvania. A year later, the colony's assembly uh, enacted laws drawing on both Magna Carta and Lord Cook's writings on the charter. But as relations uh, with England deteriorated in the second half of the 18th century, Magna Carta came again to the fore, first as the basis for remonstrations to the mother country, then as the basis for state bills of rights and constitutions. 
Virginia led the way when its legislature protested the 1765 Stamp Act, citing the ancient constitution with its rights of English subjects not to be taxed without their consent, and its trial by jury, which the act had contravened. With the several towns and acts, however, which began in 1767, relations grew only worse, culminating in the so-called coercive or intolerable acts of 1774, Parliament's reaction to the Boston Tea Party a year earlier. Yet still, when the Continental Congress met in September of 1774 to draft a set of resolves, the delegates rested the case not only on an appeal to natural law, but even more on the principles of the English Constitution, charters, and compacts. Those petitions to Parliament, having gone unanswered save by fleets of armies, the blood of Lexington, and the fires of Charleston and Falmouth, as John Quincy Adams would later write, the colonists soon prepared to sever their ties with the motherland. Yet the documents that both preceded and followed independence continued to draw on the principles first set forth in Magna Carta, as did the Declaration of Independence itself, with its catalog of grievances not unlike those that gave rise originally to the Charter. From the Virginia Declaration of Rights to the new constitutions of South Carolina, Virginia, and New Jersey, all drafted before independence, to the new constitutions of Delaware, New York, and Massachusetts, drafted during the Revolution, we find provisions first found in Magna Carta, at least in principle. Trial by jury, no taxation without consent, no excessive fines or punishments, no uh, deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process by the law of the land, no taking property without compensation, and no paying for justice. But Magna Carta's influence did not end with the revolution. It continued on to the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and from there to the First Congress, which drafted the Bill of Rights shortly after being seated in 1789. Thus, while the new Constitution gave Congress the power to tax rather than the executive, as in 13th century England, tax bills had to originate in the House, the body closest to the people, a reflection of Magna Carta's prohibition on taxation without common counsel of the realm. Turning to the Bill of Rights, where Magna Carta's influence is most found, and taking the original charter's relevant chapters in order, chapter one hardly reflects our modern view of the separation of church and state, but neither did the First Amendment in its original applications. Yet by assuring that the king would not interfere with church elections, it surely foreshadows that understanding. Chapter 20 requires that fines and punishments fit the wrong at issue and so anticipates the Eighth Amendment's protections against excessive fines and cruel and unusual punishments. Chapters 28, 30, and 31 prohibit the taking of grain or other chattels without just compensation, a clear precursor of the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. I can't help but note here a case now before the Supreme Court, Horn v. Department of Agriculture. A California farmer is challenging the government for taking 47% of his raisin crop without compensation pursuant to a New Deal agricultural marketing scheme. I doubt even King John would have gone that far. <laughs> Chapter 38 prohibits prosecutions based on a bailiff's say-so alone without faithful witnesses, while Chapter 40 promises neither to sell nor deny nor delay justice, thus anticipating several guarantees of the Sixth Amendment that in the case of defendants of criminal prosecutions. 
Finally, there's chapter 39, probably the most famous of Magna Carta's provisions. No freeman shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased or exiled or in any way destroyed, nor will we go against him uh, or send upon him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land, often called simply the law of the land provision. Chapter 39 found its way into many documents, including as due process clauses of our Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. And the protection it afforded Freeman expanded to many others over the years, much as with our own Constitution. Having now briefly canvassed the importance of Magna Carta for developments in American law, let me return to the point with which I began. Although America uh, clearly did, uh, did not spring fully formed ex nihilo from, in 1776, there are nonetheless important and basic differences between legal developments here and in England, differences going to the very theory underlying the two regimes. To be sure, the late 18th century struggle in America, like that at Runnymede, began in his effort to wrest rights from the power in place, in both cases in the name of ancient rights as loyal subjects. An important institutional difference, however, is that the nobles and clergy were rebelling against the king, what we would call the executive, whereas it was against acts of parliament that we Americans were rebelling, albeit enforced by the king, which helps to explain why, once the rebellion took place in the form of the Declaration of Independence, our fire was directed against the king's long train of abuses and usurpations. A critical point to draw from that, however, is how sovereignty in England moved gradually and often uncertainly from the crown to parliament. In fact, to this day, England has nothing like our own separation of powers. Indeed, its high court was only recently separated from the House of Lords. But differences are deeper than institutional, much deeper. In America, a radical change unfolded during the short span between 1774 and 1776, culminating in the Declaration of Independence. In it, we addressed not the king or parliament, but a candid world, justifying our independence, not in the name of our ancient rights as Englishmen, but in the name of the universal rights of all mankind. As the Declaration plainly states, we dissolved the political bands that connected us to England and instituted new government by the authority of the good people of these colonies. And where did we get that authority? We didn't get it from anyone save our creator. We were born with it, born free, with natural, unalienable rights to rule ourselves. Thus did the Declaration of Independence become America's Magna Carta. Drawing ironically on the writings of an Englishman, John Locke, whose ideas permeated political thought in America long before independence, we invoked a state of nature, absent government, to explain the foundations of political legitimacy. We declared liberty our natural condition and government by consent the legitimate means for securing it, but only if constitutionally limited, leaving us otherwise free to live our lives as we pleased. And when we reconstituted ourselves 11 years later, we returned to those principles, making it clear from the start in the preamble to the new constitution that sovereignty rests with we the people. It is we who constitute and empower government by right Thus, government does not give us our rights. On the contrary, we give government its powers, such as we do, as enumerated in the Constitution we ratify. 
And therein lies the fundamental difference between the two political systems, ours and England's. England had its glorious revolution, to be sure, but it never led to so fundamental a break with the past and to reconstituting the polity from the ground up, beginning with the moral order from which the political and legal orders would be derived. Nor operationally did it lead, for example, to the kind of judicial review that Lord Cook adumbrated in 1610 in his famous dictum in Dr. Bonham's case, as the Ninth Amendment attest. To decide cases before them, our judges can appeal, at least in principle, to the common right and reason Cook invoked, which is implicit in the positive law of our written constitution. Your first Wall Street Journal piece was commenting on that case. Oh, it was indeed, yes. (laughs) Thus, the doctrine of delegated, enumerated, and limited powers is, properly speaking, our Bill of Rights. Alexander Hamilton put it plainly, the Constitution is itself, in every rational sense and to every useful purpose, a Bill of Rights. Let's remember the Bill of Rights was not ratified until four years after the Constitution was written. And it didn't really amend the Constitution the way the 17th Amendment did, for example, by changing the method of constituting the Senate. Rather, it simply made explicit certain ways in which Congress's pursuit of its enumerated ends or the president's execution of those pursuits might be rendered improper under the general limits imposed by the necessary and proper clause. Today, of course, the elegant theory of legitimacy the founders and framers bequeathed us has been largely abandoned, particularly after progressives effectively rewrote the Constitution exactly 150 years after it was actually written. As a result of that rewrite, which reversed the presumption from all that is not given is reserved to all that is not reserved is given, we're practically back in the fields of Runnymede, having repeatedly to importune our government for relief from its its assumption of plenary power. And it isn't untethered executive power, arbitrary rule by the king, that we worry about so much as executive power arising from majoritarian democracy, or more likely from the dynamics of special interest politics, as public choice economists have shown. Well, none of that will change until we rediscover the true original extent and end of civil government, as Locke subtitled his seminal second treatise of government. But to conclude on a more positive note in this celebratory year of Magna Carta, although the charter began as a distinctly English statement, its sheer endurance and fecundity over time has served to distinguish it not only as a touchstone of English and American liberties, but as a symbol of the liberties of all mankind. It was a major step in the advance toward liberty and an inspiration for our founders as they created the United States of America. Thus, it remains a document worthy of our continued celebration as we do here today. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Uh, I found that fascinating and, and also fascinating that that was the first time I can recall that Roger spoke for the least amount of time of any of the, uh, the panelists. Um, uh, before, we open, before we open to questions, I want to give uh, Mr. Palmer and Professor Helmholtz an opportunity to respond to anything they've heard. 
Okay, let's uh, open it up to the floor. Uh, please wait for the microphone and identify yourself in any affiliation and actually ask a question rather than making a speech. Let's go right here. Thank you. My name is Cornelia Weiss, and this is a question for Professor Homholtz. Um, I find um, Chapter 8 quite interesting, and um, I'd like for you to uh, comment, um, was that promoting women's rights, or was that a restriction on women's rights? Well, it was both, really. It's, a, it's a, like a lot of the chapters of uh, Magna Carta. It's a compromise uh, deal. The, uh, the law of the church was for freedom of, in, in marriage, free choice on the part of women and men, uh, both. And that's respected here by uh, giving widows the right not to marry if they don't want to. But on the other hand, property rights were involved, and the, uh, and the barons wanted to secure their own property right because widows uh, were rich, or at least some of them were rich in, in England, and they controlled a good deal of property. Uh, and that's why there's a restriction put on the, uh, on the ability to marry by women that you have here. So it's a, it's a good example of, uh, of what you see repeatedly through the charter. That is the, uh, the, the basic idea put into practice and limited in practice because of, uh, uh, it mattered for other uh, reasons. Is that responsive to your, what you asked me or not? Hold on. Um, uh, wait for the microphone. I'll, I'll allow a follow-up. Um, well, could you give a historical context? Is this simply a restatement of what the law was and the practices were at that time, or was it a step um, well, the, further the, or back? The, the law on the subject about freedom and marriage was, a, uh, was newly um, stated in the canon law during the 12th century, uh, and it was contrary to... Uh, customary rights. So in that sense, it was uh, new, not in 1215, but in, uh, in the 12th century. Uh, on, on the other hand, what you have here is a compromise of that new right uh, with the habits of feudal lords and the need, their need, their felt need, to protect their interest in, uh, in property. So it's a little of both, I'd, I'd say. Fifth row. On the right, fifth row on the right. <clears throat> up, up more. <laughs> there we go, right here. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm Ted Gebhardt. I'm a retired antitrust lawyer. Um, my question um, probably goes to uh, Roger Pallon's remarks. Um, as you may know, um, in celebration of the 800th anniversary of the Library of Congress over this past several months have had a special Magna Carta exhibit, including several lectures on Magna Carta. I had an opportunity to uh, attend many of those lectures, and one of the things that came out of almost all of them was that um, Magna Carta is revered, going all the way back to our founding fathers, has been revered much more significantly in the United States than it has in England. Um, do you agree with that, and what would be the explanation for that? I expect the explanation is the advanced state of education in England. 
about which Tom Palmer knows because he is a graduate of one of their top institutions. Perhaps he would care to comment on that as well. It is an interesting question and a puzzle. If you go to Runnymede, you will find a very small and modest monument at the base of which it says, erected by the American Bar Association. Mm. Yeah. And, and so one of the questions is, why is it not more well-known uh, in England? And that, I think, is an interesting puzzle. It was mentioned earlier, though, many of the American colonists who came over came during that intense period of constitutional struggle leading up to the Civil War in England, and they brought with them those radical Puritan ideas. By the way, Puritan does not mean how we read it today, people who don't like drinking and gambling exclusively, and those who wanted to purify the church. And those radical political ideas were brought by many of those settlers, the idea of a lodial title rather than tenorial, that you held property of your own right, not as a concession from the king. And so those deeply influenced the American founders. That's part of the explanation, but it still is a puzzle. Yeah, if I may just expand on my smarty-alecky remark uh, earlier. Um, the... the in, in the United States, we have a professoriate that in many respects uh, is antipathetic to the kind of, uh, to the view of, of Magna Carta as a monument of liberties. Uh, but in England, it's my understanding that the professoriate is even, uh, shall we say, uh, further advanced in that um, uh, antipathy to that kind of uh, classical liberal vision. And so that could be part of why it is, uh, it is uh, frowned upon. Way in the back. I should mention, by the way, if any of you need to get on Wi-Fi, the username is Cato, all caps, and the password is Give Me Liberty with a capital on each uh, uh, first letter of the word, uh, G-M-L. Uh, yes, this question relates to the, uh, the gentleman before me. Isn't, isn't the reason why um, Magna Carta probably isn't held in higher regard is because King Henry II is one of the three great, three great monarchs in, in creating the English rule of law. And because of his tragic uh, dispute with Thomas Beckett, and also because um, he got along very well with his barons, and he was a great, great soldier, a great warrior, he wouldn't have lost Normandy. Isn't that, uh, I mean, Frederick Maitland really... His favorite king is King Henry II in the uh, history of English law. Isn't that the reason why Magna Carta is probably not idealized in England? Anyone? Yeah, the, uh, another possible reason is the, uh, the sovereignty of parliament in England, which we don't have. Uh, that's really in some ways antithetical to Magna Carta's underlying principles. Uh, and they're just beginning to wake up to that fact uh, today. All right there. Hi, my name is uh, Chuck Woolery, former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations. Uh, just looking at the problems we face today in terms of terrorism and, and now with the Soviet Union and China, um, it seems like national sovereignty, uh, having supremacy over human rights, is the primary problem, and that if there is a way in the world to put human rights above national sovereignty, that we would resolve most of the problems that we have today. Can we respond to that concept? Go, go, you want to take a the problem obviously has to do with enforcement, 
And if we had a world government that was limited in its powers and enforced rights, that would be fine. We could all sign up for that. We don't have that. That's not going to happen. And so I think in this context, what's important is to find indigenously within each nation, they have to struggle for their own rights. And that is not something that can be delivered to them uh, from outside. That's why I mentioned connecting in each case to their own indigenous roots, which sometimes need to be excavated because they've been covered up by centuries of tyranny and oppression. The case of Russia is a very good case in point. Professor Pipes has much to say about this question, and I look forward to his comments. But there are roots there, and Russian advocates of liberty need to tie their concerns not only to external documents, but to their own history, so it's a part of their identity. If they fail to do that, I don't think that the prospects of human rights in any particular nation are very rosy. They need to find their local roots and connect them. And that's a, a question Russians have to engage in. It can't be done by outsiders. Moreover, it's uh, at bottom an institutional problem. Even if you've got the, uh, the, the substantive law right, uh, you may not have the institutional arrangements for that substantive law uh, in place. Uh, and as to pick up on that point about if we had world government, etc., thank God we don't have world government because it allows for many... It allows, just as in the United States, uh, when, um, when Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, and California tax their um, citizens um, uh, oppressively, you can always move to Texas or elsewhere, and people are demonstrating that today in spades. Well, so too on the international scene, when you've got multiple states uh, or countries, then uh, when things get uh, terribly rough in your country, you can always leave, at least in most cases. All right, let's see the next. This uh, gentleman right here on the uh, aisle. And then we'll go to Todd right Thank after that. Okay. Thank you. Carl Golovin. Uh, you'd mentioned the papacy is nullifying the Magna Carta. And at the website conquer.watch.eu, I'd found a, a brief excerpt from the um, papal bull, which it seems very informative. And I'd like your comment on whether the papacy has uh, updated its perspective. Uh, the quote being, we refuse to overlook such shameless presumption which dishonors the apostolic see, injures the king's right, shames the English nation, and endangers the crusade on behalf of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and by the authority of Saints Peter's and Paul his apostles, we utterly reject and condemn this settlement. Under threat of excommunication, we order that the king should not dare to observe and the barons and their associates should not insist on it being observed. The charter with all its undertakings and guarantees we declare to be null and void of all validity forever. Has there ever been an update, ever been an update on that perspective? No, because um, it, was, it was probably in response to the petition by King John himself. And the papal chancery uh, essentially didn't always uh, um, follow exactly what they were asked. But normally, the language of the, uh, of the papal bulls followed the petition that had been given to them. And that's what happened, I think, in, in Magna Carta. You ask about an update. Uh, all, the, all the pope was doing there was saying that the, uh, that the oath that King John had taken to observe Magna Carta uh, was uh, taken, uh, was, it was invalid. Uh, so it doesn't state a, a firm papal policy but said that in this circumstance, the shameless nature of the oath, the force that had been exerted on King John, the, uh, the, the hindrance to the crusade that it uh, 
encompassed the uh, the breach of the feudal uh, duty that the king owed to the uh, pope, uh, and a couple of other miscellaneous factors meant that the uh, that this particular oath was invalid. So I don't think we ought to make a whole lot of it because the uh, the uh, the church came round to the revised Magna Carta, and in fact Magna Carta was read. Uh, by the church twice a year in, in each in cathedral church in England uh, in subsequent centuries. Second row. Thank you. I'm Todd Gaziano, and I, I think you all did a great job of harmonizing some of the thinking. But I think I want to follow up, um, Tom, on, on some of your, your discussion. Very interesting that there were a lot of other compacts before or near the same time of, of Magna Carta. But as Roger has pointed out, uh, Cook reconception, and you said it was used as a powerful narrative. I care more about where the narrative has taken us and whether that's unique. Cook, of course, uh, reconceptualized it as constitutional rights, even if it was the constitutional right of the courts and parliament. Then the uh, Locke and the Americans uh, reconceptualized it not only as constitutional rights but individual rights. So, to what extent were those kind of of, of parallel um, thought processes? You know, I I know only limited amounts of the Enlightenment thinking and where that's led. Hamburger argues that you know that this was unique in America. Uh, uh, were there parallel um tr transition or transformations and and translations like that very very briefly this is a huge huge question um first as professor helmholtz mentioned there's the text and the context and we see this repeatedly a text in some particular circumstance should be understood in those contexts but it's later applied in another case and i think we see this in american history very well you look at the Declaration of Independence and then Frederick Douglass's famous speech of 1854 on the 4th of July, demanding that this be applied to everyone. And he says, what does this mean about me and people like me? It's a very powerful application of that text in a different context. So that the meaning is changed and adapted in this way and reapplied. But in the broader European context, some of the important experiments in constitutionalism that have been forgotten, think about the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yes, it was divided in 1795, the third partition of Poland. It did last longer than our constitution has lasted so far. So it should not be dismissed quite so lightly. And as been pointed out by realtors since time immemorial, Poland's big problem was location, location, location. Uh, being in between Russia, Prussia, and Austria was not very auspicious. But they developed a uh, very robust constitutional system, the same. The parliament had enormous powers. They had the largest electorate of any nation at the time. I think it was about 10% of the population had the franchise. And so there are many other experiments and uh, English readers are sometimes blinded and only look at their own tradition and it helps to do something that isn't done anymore which is to actually learn foreign languages uh, and this is I think uh, degradation of scholarship in the English-speaking world is partly because of that let's go right here Uh, George Georgiou, Towson University. Uh, Professor Helmets, you've mentioned fish. Um, what impact did uh, uh, the charter have on our later understanding in terms of the differentiation between private property and public property? And 
actually uh, ownerless land uh, and freedom of uh, rivers, uh, waterways, and uh, the open seas. Um, how did that impact our understanding today of, uh, of that, uh, that differentiation? You should go to the first class of his property law, uh, 1L class. He'll talk about Pearson versus Post and these sorts of things. But You'd be very welcome there. Uh, well, Fish or uh, Reese Nullius, as, as you know, and have you ever read the case of Arnold against Munby, the New, New Jersey case? That, that's a good example of the, uh, the effect that some of the ideas I'm talking about uh, had. Uh, it's a wonderful case about, uh, uh, was the Raritan River? I, I've, I've kind of forgotten that. But it has uh, existed in a certain, at least a debased form until today. So uh, that's a wonderful uh, reminder of some of the power, the staying power of some of these ideas. Let's go over here, fourth row. Thanks. I'm Tad Lipsky. I'm a practicing lawyer at Latham and Watkins, and I want to thank the panel for truly extraordinary presentations. Very grateful for that. I have a very specific question, which is whether there is uh, in Magna Carta any trace of the principle that no person should be a judge in his own cause. I, I can't remember. Uh, that certainly was a natural law principle, uh, as you see in, uh, in Dr. Bonham's case. Mm. Uh, in, uh, in Cook's report of that case. Um, and whether it actually appears in, in Magna Carta, I'm not sure. But it's the kind of principle that, uh, that, uh, that was important under natural law uh, assumptions uh, and which had a real-world um, real uh, impact. I, I know that doesn't answer your question, but uh, that's the best I can do right now. All right, I think this is going to be our last question. Let's go right up there. Fifth row in the middle. Uh, it, it seems like uh, one of the uh, main reasons uh, for the origin of the Magna Carta and rule of law around the world uh, was to rein in uh, the abuse of power uh, and that that continues even today in America with the United States Constitution and also other countries around the world. Um, I'll address that because it was addressed in my formal remarks. Um, to be sure, that is a continuing problem, and one of the points I tried to bring out, if I may elaborate on it, is that um, the more you empower government to provide you with goods and services, the more you empower the unelected part of government, the bureaucracy, uh, to... Um, engage in the kinds of uh, oppressive actions that, for all intents and purposes, are extraordinarily difficult to restrain. Um, administrative law is the way we try to do it, but we've seen, especially over the last six years, uh, how difficult that is. And so it is a continuing problem, and it comes from, uh, as I said, the... Um, moved by progressives to reject the vision of the founding generation and uh, institute a much uh, a larger government in order to provide us all with the goods and services that, in their view, could be provided only through government. Well, this is what we've got as a result. Ilya. Yeah. 
Can I mention very quickly on this question of judging one's own case, chapter 52 invokes it but does not declare it. And the question is that anyone disazed or dispossessed of his property it shall unjustly shall be returned. And it refers to the 25 barons and uh, various peers as judges of that. So it, it doesn't declare the principle, but it seems implicit in the legal remedy that's provided in Chapter 52. And Lord Cook did himself um, uh, counsel, uh, I believe it was James uh, the first, that um, he could not be a judge uh, uh, in cases uh, which are rooted in, uh, he realized that the king's uh, reason was, was consummate, but um, this was the reason of learned people learned in the law, and the king was not learned in the law. And so um, uh, that's, we have, there are several examples. I think Fortescue also in his day uh, approached the king on similar grounds. Okay, before we thank our speakers, just a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, once we do uh, conclude, there's a 15-minute break. Water is available in the winter garden. Restrooms are available both on this floor and the lower floor. I just visited one. They're very functional. Um, and let me just say that to the extent that any of you are here because you think it's fascinating history, um, that you know, you know, for once Cato's not dealing with some technocratic uh, you know, PowerPoint-based chart analysis of... Uh, you know, what the uh, rent-seeking deadweight loss is or, or something like this. Uh, first of all, Magna Carta uh, uh, outlaws PowerPoint. That's one thing. It's an early, it was rewritten in a, in a slightly different way, so that's why you saw our speakers uh, present as they did. Uh, but also, Magna Carta is very real. Uh, even someone like Chief Justice John Roberts, who was fond of saying, uh, you know, things like this, these fascinating myths of history or law review articles are irrelevant. Earlier this year, he wrote a, an opinion in a criminal procedure case that cited Magna Carta uh, several times. Uh, so even if uh, uh, some people, uh, practicing lawyers or judges might think that this is all ancient history, it's still uh, very much alive. So let's thank all our speakers, and we'll be back in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>